0: Go ahead and there we go. Take your Bible uh, and open up to John chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 24. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are Bibles around you. You can find one of those blue Bibles and look to page 901. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible, you're not familiar with the Bible, let me just encourage you. Do pick up a Bible and open it. We want you to be convinced That what is about to be said for the next several minutes is not coming from my mind. It's not some truth that we as a group have made up, but it is actually coming from the son of God himself. God, the father through his son, speaking to us, we would prefer it. If you, if you would walk out of here, knowing that the words that you hear are ones you need to deal with between you and God, (laughs) rather than you need to agree with just because I said them. So John chapter 14, 15 through 24. If I asked you what you live for, what would you say? If you had to be totally honest, what do you live for? Now, I cannot claim to know what you would say, but I do know and claim that I know why you would say it. Whatever honest answer you or I give to that question, what we live for, that answer will reflect what we love. What we love. Love is the posture of a person's heart. Our hearts are where we hold our truest values, desires, priorities. Our hearts assess and fix value to things for all different kinds of reasons. So the act of love is first and foremost that it is a decision of your heart to value something. Then in connection to that, your heart will move your mind and your body to act on those values, those loves. We live for what we love. You could even say you live your loves More than any other thing, love is the orienting framework and feature of our lives. What we love conditions how we spend our time, the way we spend it, who we spend it with, the decisions we make, the reasonings we employ for why we do what we do. And to experience love is usually why we live the lives we do we we naturally value something in order to be valued in return now this obviously can get really messed up and distorted but still the heart is thinking it will find love even in the worst places i guarantee you that what we love is the chief orienting and organizing feature of our lives And as hopefully we'll see this morning, this is not my idea, but God's. And as we'll see, God wants us to think about our loves because through our loves, we find out if we have life with God. In John 14, we're going to pick up in the middle of a conversation Jesus has been having with his followers. He's been discussing with them this subject. What is life with God? He tells his disciples earlier that he's creating a way for them to live in a relationship of love with God. And in our section this morning, Jesus explains how the love of God marks life with God. How the love of God will mark the life lived with God. See if you can pick up on that as I read our passage this morning. John fourteen, fifteen through 24. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. My main aim this morning is for us to be able to know whether or not we have life with God. Based on the evidence of God's love in our life. To know whether or not we have life with God based on the evidence of God's love in our lives. And we will do that through making two main observations from this text. This is my outline. If you're keeping notes, first observation, the love of God means there is life with God. The love of God means there is life with God. And then secondly, and much more briefly, no love for God Means there is no life with God. So let's start there with the first observation. The love of God marks life with God. That's what we see there in verse 15 through 21. When there is, Jesus is saying, when there is love for God and from God, there is life with God. And where there is life with God, we will experience the love of God. So look at verse 21. Verse 21, I think, is is helpful. It It is a kind of navigating point for the rest of this text. It's a summary statement of what Jesus says in verse 15 to 20. It's kind of like the capstone, the reiteration of that first paragraph. Verse 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So this is, a, this is a description in summary form about love between us, the Father, and the Son. And it's a description that says all these loves will work together and they will have a visible evidence. We could say verse 21 is what Jesus says life with God is. Notice. That that life is a relationship between people, God the Father, and his Son. And every party in that relationship is demonstrating the same thing. What is it? Love. As we go through verses 15 through 20, we will see how... Though that verse is explained in verse 21 and verse 15 through 20 kind of explains verse 21 in fuller detail. So let's walk through those. There are three distinct ways the love of God marks life with God that we see in verses 15 through 20. Let's look at the first one. The first one in verse 15 is this. The first distinct mark of love marking life with God is this. Our obedient love for Jesus... Marks our life with God. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus' statement is very straightforward. If you love Jesus, if you value him, if you prize him, if you prioritize and respect and adore and want to have a life with him, then what? You will obey what he commands. Now, by Jesus' commands, I think he means to summarize all the teachings we have on record in the Bible, the ones that come from his mouth, the ones that come through his authorized apostles in the whole of the New Testament, and even all the teachings of the Old Testament that get further clarity through Jesus. The shorthand version of all these commands that he's telling us we'll obey if we love him is this. Love, you will love God and you will love others. Now, while very straightforward, this may be a statement from Jesus we find very hard to agree with. For some, the idea of obeying anyone cuts across the grain of the autonomy and liberty that you want. You want to be your own master. You want to answer to no one. For others, you might insist that love and authority cannot mix together as Jesus suggests that they do here. Isn't the world right now crying out against all authority structures, institutions, governments, churches claiming they are incapable of love as they are and they are only designed to prop up people in power. In our world, authority and love are often pitted as enemies. But Jesus will say in a moment that he loves his people and at the same time, he tells them he is their authority. And and how you show love to him is in how you respond to his authority in your life. So Jesus is here commending his loving authority to you. And he's commending your love of his loving authority in your life. Both. And he's telling all of us that this is a good part of life with God. You see, Jesus is not an authoritarian. he is inviting us into a perfect love with God and describing what that looks like. So you can trust Jesus. You can trust him that when he tells you to turn over all that you value and prize to him and get him in exchange. He's not going to mislead you or misuse you. He's going to love you. Of course, God's laws have always been predicated on love. Even before Jesus came and said these things. From the beginning, God gave Adam and Eve. Ken Ken prayed for and confessed our sin, even as it comes to us from our first father, Adam and Eve. Even then, God gave Adam and Eve a command to follow so that they would be loved through obedience. If they had obeyed God, they would have been protected from death. They would have been led into life. By God commanding and by us obeying, Jesus intends us to experience life at its fullest level, situated in what is good and right and true. But let's be clear. Jesus must be your master if you're going to claim to love him. And if he is that, there will be visible obedience to him in your life. All of us must remember that the ability to do what Jesus is describing here depends on what he was about to do just after he says these things. His good news, the gospel, what Jesus would do in laying down his life and taking it up again for the forgiveness of sins and our salvation. That is the only way that our hearts can be changed to know what Jesus is talking about, to respond to his love by us loving him and obeying what he commands. See, Christianity is not a fear-based religion that demands obedience but supplies none of the means with which to do it. Sadly, I think much of the world is trapped in allegiance to such a system. Christianity is a love-based relationship in which God commits himself to give us everything we need to know him and live with him. No clearer picture of that than Christ's death for us. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you're here. That, that hopefully someone welcomed you here and that you have felt welcomed and that you'll feel welcome to come back. Even if some of what I say kind of makes you uncomfortable. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. If maybe you're recognizing you're not a follower of Jesus, let, let me ask you, have you considered what law you do live by and how that reflects what you love? When you live by your own law or by the law of money as fulfillment or romantic relationships as ultimate, I want you to know that you're you're placing your trust in that. You're you're putting your heart into the hands of those things. Those things will become like masters to you. But they are incapable of caring for you or loving you. They're not going to keep you from dying. You're going to die without them. So what would it look like? Please entertain this question sincerely from me to you out of love. What would it look like for you to shift your love to the one who is a different master altogether? God, who offers you something, everything, life in his love. It would mean that you would need to turn from those other masters. And wholly and lovingly put your life in Jesus' hands. Oh, but it would be worth it. Jesus died to forgive you all your false loves. And he rose from the grave to make you new and give you this new life with him. He offers it to you even today. If you are a believer in Jesus, be helped by the invitation Jesus gives you to do some self-examination here from Jesus' words. Think on this. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Do you love Jesus, Christian? I trust you do. I trust you do because he's put his love in your heart. Are you keeping his commandments? Perhaps even now you're experiencing conviction as the spirit brings to mind in this moment, the commands you are deliberately and repeatedly not obeying. Friends, why, if you love Jesus, do you continue in that? Isn't it because we allow our loves to go to other places? Sin always follows from a loss of love for Jesus. So let's be asking Jesus to refine and purify our love so that they will only go to him. But, but I, trust that, I trust that Jesus, in these words, intends to bring to us more than just conviction. I think he intends to encourage us to assess all the ways that his work he's already done in his people's hearts has produced already the fruit of obedience to him in your life. Praise God for demonstrating his power in you such that you would have over past days and weeks and months and years made decision after decision to put off the old way with its selfishness and its impatience and its greed and its lust and its hate and its anger and turn into the new way of life he's given you. Praise God for how you've increasingly heard Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me and you have willingly responded in faith and obedience. Praise God for how in ways you've not even been aware, the character and likeness of Christ has more and more emerged in how you treat each other naturally. And in the person that you've come to be so much different than the person you once were. You see, it's the comfort that God is in us that makes Jesus's words able to assure our hearts and not just question our hearts. The heart of the Christian is the heart fashioned new with a new love. Jesus's love. Jesus is speaking assurance to his disciples and to us saying, once my love is in you, you will follow me. Isn't that free? How good and loving God is to change our hearts and redirect our loves. By this, he wakes us up into a life of love with him. I think it's popular right now to think that we, as Christians, are being a help to society by pointing out and calling out everyone else's disobedience to what we think the rules should be. And I think this goes beyond the church. I think it's existing in the world right now. The capitalists are angry at the socialists, the environmentalists rage against the economy, the political parties war. Even Christians build identities on how wrong they know everyone else is. If you disagree with a person or a group in public, you know, you'll get love from those who agree and you'll get hate from those who don't. Is that what Jesus is encouraging us to do here? Isn't Jesus saying that we should all first pay attention to our own obedience to him? This is an incisive statement that should shut us up. Before we speak hypercritically of our brother or sister, especially. Jesus is saying, first question. Do you love me? then put your energies in you keeping his commandments. How much better for a world will we be if we follow Jesus's way in this? Parents, do you want to love your children well? Church, we as a church want to love the children around us well. How do we do that? We pray. We pray for their hearts. We pray that the hearts of our children and that God would work to change their loves from themselves to the Lord. Pray for that. Parenting that only or primarily aims at getting your kids to obey you or obey God. Misses the necessary change God must first do. And from that change, they will grow to want to love him. Verse 15 gives clear guidance on how we can disciple each other as a church. Our role in each other's lives is to encourage and fan into flame the love of Jesus we all share. How do we do that? Well, we get more and more familiar with the commands of Jesus. So that we can help each other follow him. Let's all consider seeking to have at least one person in your life. At least one. That you and them are looking to the scripture together to find out what Jesus commands. And then talking to each other, praying with each other, and helping each other obey him. We can start there. And let's, let's also talk together about how much we love Jesus. What a good conversation to have. You know that when you feel your love for someone or something, it is very easy to orient your life around him and tell other people about how much you love that thing. That's why we talk about movies all the time. It's when we forget our love for Jesus that we grow tired and haphazard in our obedience to him. So conversations together about how we love Jesus is going to help us grow in our love for Jesus. So let's talk about that. As we gather this morning, our goal is that Jesus would speak to us his commands. And then we would go from here saying to each other, let's love Jesus. Let's obey him until we come back together again. That's the first mark of life with God and the longest. It's our obedient love for Jesus. The second mark of our life with God is this in verse 16 and 17. It is the father's spiritual love in you. The father's spiritual love in you is a mark of life with God. Look at verse 16 and 17. And I will ask the father. And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now remember, remember that verse 21 is a summary sentence or interpretive key for this whole paragraph. So when Jesus says in verse 21 that the one who loves him will be loved by his father Here in verse 16 and 17, we are getting an explanation of what the father's love means, what it looks like. It is the father sending his spirit to live inside you. That's the father's love for you. So Jesus is here predicting what will happen that you can read about in Acts chapter 2. After he goes back to heaven, the spirit of God comes down and dwells in the apostles at Pentecost, empowering their gospel ministry. But Jesus' promise extends beyond those 12 men. It applies to every person here in this room and any person who will repent of their sin and trust in Christ for salvation. When you come to know God in salvation, he comes to live in your heart by his spirit. This is an incredible show of love by an omnipotent and almighty God to condescend, to link his presence with our mortal existence. So we see throughout the Old Testament that God's priorities largely revolve around this mission. Ezekiel will proclaim God's promise when he says in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's priorities around this mission. Jesus's priorities revolved around this m- mission. It was the humility of Jesus to suffer and die for sinners that became the path upon which the spirit of God would come and inhabit hearts made new by the blood of Jesus. So notice here how... How the triune God in all three persons are coordinating and working in perfect agreement in order to live with us and in us. And how he planned for no interruptions or disruptions in any age. Christ leaves, the spirit comes in his place. God is still with us. Should you ever find yourself doubting God's love for you, Christian, remember that he has shifted history in order that he might live in you and you in him. It's common for people skeptical of Christianity and the claims of Jesus to assume that they know everything there is to know about Jesus and therefore have all they need to reject him on the basis of science or reason or argument, philosophy. If you don't believe in God because you think you know enough to render him untrue, have you ever considered there might be a side of God you don't know? And that's why you don't believe in him. Maybe you don't believe because you don't see him. Maybe the issue is not with what has been revealed by God, but in your ability to understand God through what he has revealed. Imagine a world where nobody could taste anything save a few. The people who could sit at a table with everyone else experiencing all the flavors and the enjoyment of food, good food, and trying to share that with other people at the table, trying to talk about how amazing the meal tastes. But everyone else is unable to appreciate the gift of the meal. Or to understand what the one person is talking about because they themselves have no experience of taste. I think that's what Jesus is saying about the world and the spirit of God. There is an obstacle present in them from receiving the spirit of God and therefore they can't know God. Is that you? If you want to know how you have... God live in you. Then follow the path Jesus is laying out. What does he say? He says, I will ask the father for you. And the father out of his love will give his spirit to you. So ask Jesus. Who will ask the father. And who will give. Believer, think again on the significance of this statement. God lives in you. He lives in you. That means if you're weak this morning, his strength is empowering you from within. And in a convicting way, if, if you're considering or living in a pattern of committing sexual sin, you are attaching God in you to your Immorality. Think, if you're a person who is unsure and anxious of what lies ahead, think that the one who knows all things directs you not from without and from your circumstances, but directs you from within, speaking to you daily his truth, encouraging your desires and affections more and more to the things that he has for you. And all the while that you endure the trials and troubles of life and aging and sin and sorrow, it is the spirit that is sustaining you with hope. Joy, peace, contentment. As a church, we are right now living in this time Jesus is talking about between when Christ came and when he will return. And it is the spirit from the father that is the gift that helps us through that time. It's the spirit of God, which Jesus calls the spirit of truth, which is the agent that is working among us to show us now what is true, what we should hope in now, what we should believe now. The spirit is the one giving us the ability to understand Jesus Christ, his commands and giving us an increasing desire to obey him. In other words, if we're going to be a cheat, a church that keeps walking with God in our life together. We want to make sure we're walking with him by the spirit. The father loves us through the gift of his spirit. Do you see how loving he is to give himself to us in this way? And in that gift, you see exactly how it is. The father aims to help keep us in the truth. God is working in his church to keep her close to his truth, to live in light of his truth, to persevere in our lives that are distinguished by his truth. And so each of us as members of the church have an individual responsibility to examine if there's anything in our life that is grieving the spirit of God. Any untrue thing we are participating in that is out of step with God's truth. Any way we are stepping away from his leadership into unholiness and disobedience. And we as a church together have a responsibility to measure and assess all that we do according to his standards. We will only be a truly unified people in God when we are all led together by the same spirit and the same truth. So we must guard the life of our church from opposing spirits. Those that bring division, unresolved conflict, harbored sin, unrestrained gossip, hate, bitterness, or anger. And what a better life we enjoy with one another when it is God's spirit as our leading guide. With with him at the lead, we can know things like love and and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So let's continue to learn the way of God's spirit among us, church. Let's encourage leaning on his own understanding and not our own. Let's notice in each other all the evidences of the father's spiritual love in each other and rejoice that God lives in us. So we've considered that our life with God is marked by love, our obedient love for Jesus and the father's spiritual love for us. Now let's look thirdly to the son's promised love to us, which is a mark of our life with God. The son's promised love to us. Let's look at verse 18 through 20. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live in that day. You will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Once again, glance down at verse 21, the end of 21. Notice how Jesus summarizes this portion, the end of verse 21. I will love him and manifest myself to him. You might wonder what it is Jesus is specifically talking about here. I think he's speaking primarily about when he's going to come again, his second coming. So when he says the world will see me no more, but you will see me, he might have in mind immediately his appearing to his disciples after his resurrection. But then, but then he goes on right afterwards to talk about the resurrection of life that he will bring at his coming because I live, you will live. Throughout this section, Jesus has been telling his disciples. He's about to leave them physically and go back to his father. Jesus is preparing them for a time when they won't be together. But in light of the life, he's going to bring them when he returns. This momentary separation that's going to occur is just, as he says in verse 19, just a little while. See again what we've seen before. Jesus here is claiming to be the bridge to the Father. Were he not to return, they would be like fatherless orphans. And because he will return, there is hope for all his people. Let's appreciate what it is we are waiting for that will happen when Jesus returns. See, I think sometimes our hope wavers because we only have a vague sense of the new life that awaits us. But, but look what Jesus says will be our eternal experience once he comes back. You will know. That I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Friends, the new creation Jesus is coming to introduce to us is built on a new relationship with God. Where there is absolutely no division between us and the perfect love for God. Perfect love from God. Perfect love with God. We will value him. We will know all our value comes from him. We will adore him and we will know how he deeply adores us. We will experience his goodness and know how he has made us good. We will observe his beauty and wonder at how we get to be beautiful like him. This is the place where the longings of the human soul can find their full and true satisfaction in a loving life with God. And Jesus is leaving us hope for that day and for today. There is a world we live in now that is not the way it will always be. Here and now the world is constantly operating on fleeting and perishing loves. All around us we are urged and tempted to fix our values on things that die. To invest everything in physical beauty and to watch it slip away. Trade loving relationships with our spouses and our kids and our brothers and our sisters in Christ for career ambition or selfish leisure. But we as God's people have an abiding and eternal love that will last. We have the love of God in Christ Jesus. And maybe, perhaps, this can help you see the opportunity of trials and disappointments in this life. When our hearts get fixed on a plan or a person, that doesn't come through for us. When our lives are disrupted or even completely altered by some unseen hardship or trial, you probably know what I'm talking about. In those experiences, God teaches us the value of his love. You see, there are many, many things we can prize with all our mind and soul and strength. But God knows that only he can bring us eternal love. If you never find the love of God, it does not matter how much money, how much happiness, how much rest, comfort, popularity, or peace you can enjoy in this life. None of those things can love you in return. None of those things can bring you life with God. And so God is using trials and disappointments in your life to purify your love for him. And to prepare you for life with him. And in any trial or disappointment, we have Jesus's promise. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Think about what Christ did. What he chose to walk through to fulfill that promise to you, believer. The sinless son of God sent to earth to provide salvation for sinners came into a world that did not see him. They did not love him and they did not receive him. They saw him as a rabble rouser, a revolutionary, a public enemy. They did not see his wisdom from heaven. They did not hear his words as from God, his father. They saw folly and they denounced his truthful teachings as lies. And so the one sent from God to bring us back to God was killed by those he came to save. And as he died, he died orphaned, as it were. He took our place, cut off from the love of his father in death. So that we who are at war with God or were at war with God might become God's children. In dying for you and covering your sins. And being raised again in victory over your sin and death. Jesus has already manifested in clarity that he loves you. He has already given his life and a total commitment to you. To love you. There can be no question that Jesus loves his people. Not then. Not now. Not ever. So today, no Know that Jesus love is motivated him, motivating him to keep his promise to everyone who has trusted and believed in him. He loves you. He will come. His promise is on his mind constantly. He has not forgotten it. He will not leave you. These are the marks of a life with God that we love and obey Jesus. That The father loves us through his spirit and that Jesus promises to bring us life with him and the father forever. I wonder which one of those is the one you especially needed to be reminded of this morning. Maybe we could talk about that over lunch today. But one other point observation to make from this text and much more brief. It's the second one we find in verse 22 through 24 and it's this. No love for God means there is no life with God. Look at verse 22 to 24. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Judas, curious about something Jesus said, asks a clarifying question. He's confused about how Jesus could appear to some people, but not to others. It seems like he's wrestling with the physical problems. How could Jesus physically show up in time and space, and only some people would see him and others don't? If Jesus is Jesus, the son of God who will come back, won't everybody experience him like that? And Jesus's answer is fascinating. So first he repeats everything he just said, verse 23. And then he gives a statement of contrast. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. I think, and, and you can disagree with, with me if you want, but I think I think this is a shorthand version of a fuller answer Jesus intends us to fill in. Do you notice that in this passage that every time Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commands. He follows it with, and the father loves you and Jesus loves you. And now Jesus says, if you don't love me, you won't keep my words. According to the pattern, what follows? And the father will not love you. And the spirit will not come to live in you. And I am not coming back for you to give you life. How does a person understand if they have life with God? I think oftentimes we put that burden and onus on God, don't we? We say, because God is a loving God, I expect God will love me no matter what I do. But Jesus puts the onus on us to first ask and answer this question Do you love Jesus? Meaning, Does your life of obedience to Jesus prove that you even love him? Before we even talk about whether or not he loves you. So what's your answer? Do you love Jesus? And if everyone in this room lived with you for the next week or month or year, would they see you either obeying Jesus or being heart-wrenchingly broken when you don't and asking for his forgiveness? I would encourage you not to slip away without answering the question. Jesus finishes here by reminding us that it is not just him who is speaking. It is God who stands in authority over all of us that is speaking these words to Jesus and he speaking them to us. He is challenging us on the priority of our loves. God is declaring that there is only one love. That leads to life with him. It deeply matters what you choose to love. If you don't love God, you will not have life with him. None of us should claim to know God if we don't love him. None of us should claim to love God if we don't obey him. And so this might sound like a really weird thing for me to say, but I hope. I hope, and I prayed before preaching this sermon, that God through his spirit would help you know that you don't love God if that's in fact the true state of your heart. Maybe you've been saying for years that you're a Christian, but you don't love and obey Jesus. I pray God would help you admit that today. Confess it to him and to someone who knows you, who can walk you to the cross and show you there's forgiveness for you. And life that you haven't known yet, but you can. If you're here and you've been counting on God, overlooking all the evil you've done, even though you've not loved Jesus, may the Spirit of God convict you and bring you to Jesus so that you would love Him. These are words of warning, of course, from Jesus, but there is also a reminder for all of us a good reminder. A bright and uplifting reminder as we finish this time that none of us could love him if he didn't first love us. If any of us can claim to love him, and I know there are many in this room who can, praise God. If any of us would be comfortable to let others see our lives in the supposed proof of obedience, we know we can only do that because we are confident that it is God who has made his home in us and with us through the work of Jesus dying to forgive us and give us new hearts and come to live in us. So praise God. Praise Father, Son, and Spirit for doing that work that awakens our hearts and lives To love him. Love for God and from God is the grand mark that there is life with God. What does that mean for you? It means obedience. It means living with God by his spirit. It means waiting for his promised return. This is the life of love with God. Is his loving life. Your life. Let's pray. Father, how much is here for us to consider and keep on thinking about? Help us to, Spirit, lead us in truth as we reflect on your word, especially as it points us to consider our loves. Enable us to give up all competing loves and to see and value that yours is life. Help us to walk with each other in it. And Lord, we pray that by the power of your word and spirit speaking this morning, you would awaken people who have not yet found their satisfaction in Jesus to come alive to it today. Jesus would be real. His words would be understood to them and what they need to do in following you. We give you praise for your love, God. We rejoice that because of what Jesus has done, not only is Christ ours forevermore, but you are ours forevermore, and we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.